Hello, and welcome to episode one, the pilot episode of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. Uh, my name is Jeff Sackman, and my co-host is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Many listeners might know us as the podcasting duo behind the Tennis Abstract podcast, and I know there's a lot of overlap in the world between people interested in coronavirus and people interested in uh, tennis analytics. So here we are. But we are interested in, in not just the virus in general, but more specifically, sort of an analytical approach to the virus, which in contrast with tennis, that a lot of people are already taking. Um, obviously, there's tons of economists, epidemiologists, and so on and so forth, uh, who are a lot smarter and more knowledgeable than us um, digging into this stuff. But we are hoping to um, bridge the gap a little bit between everything that Everything, everything is going on in academia and uh, maybe what's going on at dinner table conversations. And for our first episode, we wanted to focus on the holiday gathering question, specifically with Thanksgiving happening this week. And Carl, this is this is more your brainchild than mine. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you had in mind, why why you think we should be having a podcast here about about the virus and, and an analytical way of thinking about it. Well, the first motivation, as maybe is true for, for all creations, is totally selfish. I just had a lot of questions and a lot of reactions to everything I've been reading and, and hearing about the virus, especially from a quantitative point of view, pretty much since we first heard about it at the beginning of the year. And thought of who I most often turn to to talk about these topics, especially when recording, and was fascinated to hear what you think, and you also bring a different perspective as, as a parent in, in Norway, and whereas I'm in New York, so we're experiencing this in, in different ways with different uh, political regimes. And, you know, I have some background in reading news coverage generally, uh, and assessing kind of quantitative coverage is something I did in a column for the Wall Street Journal for, I should be precise quantitatively here, I think nine years, and found myself often while reading coverage of the virus and, and hearing official statements from public health officials and seeing conflicting numbers, uh, feeling like uh, I, I that part of me was being activated again, but mostly I was just talking to myself. So... To re-emphasize what Jeff said, neither of us are, are experts here in anything biological uh, or economic, but we are enthusiastic amateurs and uh, just really interested to hear what Jeff thinks about a lot of the things I've been thinking about to myself for the last eight months or so. Yeah, Carl, I'm glad you mentioned your background as the numbers guy and then some of the projects you did with, with 538 that are probably a good a good framework for the sort of way we'll be approaching this stuff. I mean, I, I, in some of my other endeavors, I often think of myself as sort of an amateur economist, which might be a little disrespectful to actual economists, but is a good way of of describing sort of the way I think and the, the sort of work that I do, that just analyzing the sort of choices people are making with various restraints. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that's involved in every political uh, or public health question and all of that stuff is, has been very much been brought to the fore uh, for the last, well, almost the last year, the last eight months or so. So um, 
that's who we are. That's uh, what we're we're trying to accomplish here. And as I said for our, our first pilot episode here, since it is the week of Thanksgiving in the U.S. and people are deciding whether to gather, if so, how, with how many people, whether to travel, if so, how, with how many people, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of analytical approaches we could people have taken to that uh, that. That we could discuss, but let's just let's just start with with some basics here. I mean, Carl, what you're based in New York, which has a very high and rising infection rate right now. People are very aware of the risks of of gathering for any purpose, in not just the holidays. Uh, what sort of decisions are you making this week, and how? Yeah, I am very fortunate to live in the same city as my parents and my sister, and we are at least not facing the long-distance travel part of the question. I'm also fortunate to live in a family that's been workshopping an idea that I think is very appropriate this week and was seen by many friends and some family as bizarre before this week, which is the idea of why celebrate holidays exactly on the day that everybody else does. So much in the way that people might try to shift their working hours or working weeks to avoid traffic, we, even though we're not dealing with airports or anything else, have often celebrated not exactly on Thursday. This year in particular, because of the risks of being indoors with people who aren't in your household and the the warnings about about gathering with people not in your household, we... um, are having two separate meals just with uh, parents, so total four people outdoors um, and choosing days where the weather is kind enough in November, New York, to make it possible. And I think technically I realized we're therefore violating the um, official guidelines because we are gathering for Thanksgiving. And the, on the other hand, part of the contradiction in all this is that outdoor dining is open and no one is talking about closing it. And if we wanted to go eat with two people a non-Thanksgiving meal on a non-Thanksgiving day at a restaurant, which would mean being surrounded by way more people whose virus hygiene we know much less about, that would be totally fine and unremarkable. So we decided this would be okay, um, but still took precautions with the first of the two meals that we've already had. We were, we were five days early on the first one. We took turns eating, and the other two people wore masks while we were doing it. And the actual effect on our life expectancy of that small measure is probably as tiny as so many of the other small sacrifices people are making, but it, it made it feel at least a little more... Um, in keeping with the holiday spirit, such as it is in 2020. Well, and in, in New York City, the effect of life expectancy is slightly lower because you're crossing the street with less traffic. So there's a there's a trade-off there. Um, and to go back to one of the first things you said about your family uh, being flexible with dates, which is a fascinating idea, um, Tyler Cowen on his blog, Marginal Revolution, has written about similar things, not specifically what you're talking about, but he uses the term intertemporal substitution, which is a mouthful, and I'm kind of glad I got through it on my first try correctly, but it's it, it's a really useful way of thinking about it, and not just in terms of having Thanksgiving on a Tuesday or, or a week later or moving Christmas to January or whatever, but um, the broader idea of 
you know, now that we have a vaccine around the corner to, to think, you know, okay, I'm not going on a holiday now like I normally would in December, but maybe I'll do one in April, which I normally don't do. Uh, we can't be that certain about what sort of intertemporal substituting we're going to do, but that, I think that idea is a very powerful one. Uh, but we run into some problems there, don't we? Because you mentioned that your family is amenable to that sort of thing. You only need to have a few people on board, maybe people you're talking to often and might even be people you know how to convince. But that doesn't work if one of you has to work every day, except for Thanksgiving. I mean, it, it, is, is this something that you think a lot of people could apply to their own situations? Or are they going to run into bureaucracy or, or other commitments that just can't be budged? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's another advantage we had. And uh, I mean, we did do it on a weekend, which most people have off. But it's certainly an issue. I mean, I think to look at another way, if if everyone from the government to your employer to Netflix holiday schedule to, you know, holiday music on the radio is telling you that Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving as it always is. And it is this Thursday. And that is when you're off. And then the message very late in the game from the CDC is, but by the way, don't see any of your family. That's that's a conflict. I, I was hoping to hear employers proactively say maybe a month ago, hey, you're welcome to take Thanksgiving off. That's, that's a holiday. It, it, it's yours. If you want to shift that holiday forward, like go ahead and work that day. It's going to be a very chill day. Pocket the day. As a, as a day off that you can use whenever you want. And a floating day off is, at least I think Tyler Callen would say, more valuable than a fixed one. Um, and that then people would, would start to plan ahead and think, yeah, I can get through this Thanksgiving just by talking on the phone or doing a video chat. And I can, you know, celebrate once it's safe again to celebrate the way I'm hoping to. I think we've had a lot of kind of scolding public messaging and rules and without a lot of incentive and creativity. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, that it, 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 we, I think we really could use a lot more creativity from just about every angle in approaching this, because you make the great point that there's a lot of structural things that aren't changing. Yes, many companies are are handling Black Friday differently in, in terms of starting sales a week earlier, limiting the number of people in stores, um, following certain guidelines while still maintaining some kind of festive sale kind of atmosphere. But yeah, there's still holiday music on the radio. There's still, uh, there's still scheduled days off at employers in, in the same way they always have been. So it's sort of like the forces that be, which sounds very conspiratorial to say, but the government and, and corporations altogether, uh, they're all saying that you have to make changes, but only within this very predictable framework. And I'm guessing that the people who psychologically weather lockdowns the best are the ones who manage to, to, to bring in the most flexibility, um, whether it's with the help of their family or whether they're just imaginative sitting in their own room like me. Not the imaginative part, just the sitting in my own room. But, um, but we're not getting a lot of help from that. The the the, the top down sort of messaging is 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 very much about just doing the same old thing, but with restrictions. And you mentioned earlier the the difference between how your family is choosing to make decisions and and the, and the sort of restrictions that are in place in 
in New York City, and we have that on our outline to discuss as well, that everyone has to, to, to balance these choices. Like there are certain rules to follow. Some people feel the need to follow even more strict rules in some places. Some people don't believe in the rules and will flaunt, will flaunt them no matter what. Uh, some people like you are trying to, to stick with the spirit of the rules, even if they're maybe not following the letter. Uh, do you, I mean, is this a failure of the, the public health messaging? I mean, it, it could, could the top-down rules be framed in a more useful way that you know, allowed more people to kind of get on board with actually following the rules and maybe by doing so create a, a, a better environment with fewer negative externalities for everyone? <laughs> this is where I mentally note that should we have an episode two and beyond, we invite on a, uh, a public health messaging expert because... One of the critiques I saw in the coverage here is that we're not using harm reduction framework, which I think comes from other spheres of public health, including uh, illegal injections. And, so and Carl, before you go any further, so, sorry to interrupt, um, is there a standard definition for what, what harm reduction means beyond simply reducing harm? So I, that's where I was going to go is I, my acknowledgement that I'm not positive what the universal definition is, the way I always thought of it and, and understood it is you can't have a perfect situation. We're never going to have uh, Thanksgiving, even in the peak moments of the virus spread around the, the U.S., of everybody staying indoors in their own home um, all day. And in fact, you know, the, there was a poll, what, in the last couple of weeks saying that 40% of Americans were planning to have gatherings of, was it at least 10 people or was it just gatherings of some sort? I, um, I think it was just gatherings, but I'm not sure. And the, um, the, the harm reduction idea is 10, 10 people, 10 people or more, 40%. So uh, not that many gatherings maybe because they're large, but a lot of people at them. Uh, and this is in, in an environment of saying not don't gather at 10 people, but don't gather with people at all. So clearly the absolutist messaging isn't totally effective. I think the harm reduction philosophy is give people a lot of options for how to reduce the risk. And if everyone takes some of them from where they were going to be, that adds up to a lot of public health benefit maybe enough to stop the rise in cases or at least prevent the big rise in cases that some public health officials are fearing this week. So it's it's meeting people more where they are. And I, that was what I was thinking about when you were describing back to me my situation. I was realizing, for me, it's another meal with my family. It's a special meal, but I can see them the week before and the week after just as easily. And in fact, no one's saying don't see your family outside the week before the week after. Whereas for other people, this is their one big chance to, this is something that every year is a big trip home that's not just Thanksgiving Day, but the whole weekend. And then for you, for years, it's been a date on the calendar that hasn't been that relevant because you haven't lived close enough to home to, to go home or you've chosen not to go home. So it's it's just acknowledging that this doesn't mean exactly the same thing to everybody and at least do things like try to spend the entire time outside, try to wear a mask for as much time as possible. Um, 
don't stay in the same home overnight. I think that's the harm reduction idea is like harm is going to happen. It's a matter of degree and how can we diminish that degree of harm? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And one thing I really like about the, the some of the messaging I've seen in Norway is that for, for one thing, it's very, it's very upfront about what the limitations of various measures are. So for instance, in, in my local municipality, there was no mask mandate until just a couple weeks ago. Um, and really masks hadn't really become very common in Norway until the, until the second wave started hitting within this last month. Um, but when that happened, uh, I got a text, I got an email, I, I, I read all the information that they, they provided about, about masks and other measures they were taking. And the information about masks was very detailed and upfront about what they were capable of and what they weren't. Um, it said something about reducing the likelihood of an infection by 40% or something like that. I don't remember the, the details, but there were numbers. They were far lower than 100%, but the mandate is still more or less there. And another thing that's very common in the recommendations in Norway is to, to just try to limit the number of people you interact with in any given week. So in some cases, there's a specific number. I think in, in one place it was either proposed or enacted that, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't um, interact with more than 10 or 15 other people in a week. Um, but it generally doesn't say how to do that. <laughs> and, and and in some cases, it's just a recommendation, not a mandate. And that's, that seems to be kind of the, the sort of thing you're talking about put in practice, that like, you're not going to be able to stay home all the time. Like, at the very least, someone's going to have to do the food shopping. We don't have as much as much grocery delivery and delivery in general here. Uh, so you're going to have to go out. Sometimes you're going to want to go out so much, you'll do it anyway, no matter what the public health authorities say. But if, if you do kind of have this budget of contacts, then you keep your social world within the realm of what contact tracers can handle, but you still have some flexibility to live your life without feeling, without the government deciding what is or is not important to you. I mean, does that, do those sort of things fit with the idea of harm redu reduction that you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm so glad you brought up number of contacts because my intuition is that We've talked way less about that than probably we should have relative to to its impact on overall spread. That and, and you know masks are are over like if everyone masked, I think it's it's pretty universally accepted. We can definitely do a separate episode just about masks or maybe a whole series. Um, that they there's a lot of evidence that they help, at, especially at a population level, but if everyone masked and then everyone went about their lives, including spending a lot of time indoors with a lot of people, including at Thanksgiving, but also at other times, that might be, that probably would be worse than if people didn't wear masks, but uh, spent no time with anyone indoors, except in their own homes with, the, with, their, with their families. Like there's much more leverage, leverage index or something to like how many close, especially indoor contacts you have. Does that, does that sound right to you? Uh, yeah. And the, the indoor outdoor thing is something that took a long time to, to really catch on as a major point in the, the public health messaging. I mean, it's always been there, but I think it took some time for people to realize that, um, that indoor contacts, especially in places that weren't well ventilated, it was, it was hugely more dangerous. Um, 
and that's going to be a big question for a lot of of people who are going to do some kind of gathering, right? And one of the, I think there was an article in the it was in the New York Times, either the Times or the Post that oh, it was the Times that asked 600 plus epidemiologists what their plans were for Thanksgiving, and one of the people they they highlighted was uh, was hosting a, a fair number of people. I forget the exact number, but but hosting several couples, let's say, in their garage, which I think is a lot of people's solution to the problem. It can, it's, it's not totally outdoors, but it is well ventilated. Uh, so you're able to, to sort of bridge the gap there. And, and you can think of that in, in a harm reduction framework as well. You're going to have the gathering, but move it outside or move it partly outside. Uh, and, and it is less less dangerous. So one of the, one of the questions on our outline is, it, it is a pretty pretty important one for people making Thanksgiving decisions or holiday decisions in general is simply are smart, small gatherings a, a major source of infection? We hear a lot about super spreader events and, and, and the danger of larger gatherings, but now it seems like in the U.S. at least the the public health concern is that, it's, that there are so many cases out in the wild that small gatherings are enough to, to keep the virus moving. Um, if what's what's your take here, Carl? If if small gatherings moved outside, I mean, is is that enough, or or is it is it so far out of control at this point that I mean, even small gatherings need to be restricted the way that in a lot of states I think are moving to to do right now. Yeah, it's a great question, and there were these dueling, I think, dueling articles in the Washington Post and New York Times about this topic. Uh, I say I think dueling because it's not like. The Times article, which was second, explicitly stated that it was existing to refute the Washington Post article. The Post said small gatherings are fueling the the pandemic. And I go in and read it, really interested in the latest research that's going to show this and and what this means. And the actual evidence in the article is either anecdotal or limited. And the Times article, taking that same evidence, says the evidence for this is anecdotal and limited. And here's what we do know. But I, I saw some commentary in the Times article saying, really, the answer is we don't really know what's spreading things anymore, partly because contact tracing has become almost impossible. There are so many cases. Contact tracers themselves are, are getting sick. States' budgets are, are stretched. They, they invested a lot in contact tracers to, to do work for a few months, and now it looks like a year and beyond. And people are getting fatigued about answering questions, but also the very reason that the virus seems to be spreading so much is that people are making so many contacts and also maybe not remembering them as well as they did. So I think it's possible that small gatherings are a bigger factor than the limited contact tracing data would show, but that people are less likely to sort of remember them or note them or consider them, and also by their very nature, there's going they're going to leave less of a trace than a large event that we call a super spreading event, just because there's so many more people who could report on that event. Um, so, I think it's it's probably a bad idea. It's also probably indicative of one of the hardest problems I would think quantitatively about assessing cause of individual infections and spread, which is that these things are so highly correlated. Like if I'm regularly having people over for dinner parties indoors, then I'm probably not paying very close attention to a lot of other requirements. Um, 
And and that brings me to the last point here I want wanted to make, which is you brought up you brought up mandates and rules and requirements. And I think we should say at some point, part of what might be breaking down is that people have figured out like none of these are really being enforced. And some of them are basically impossible to be enforced. And for instance, in New York, it was announced it was a rule that Thanksgiving gatherings had to have fewer than 10 people. And a Staten Island Republican from I think the city council in New York tweeted proudly that he was going to have a gathering of more than 10 people as kind of a in-your-face response. And part of it was an acknowledgement of, you're not going to come bust up my Thanksgiving. No one is actually going around and busting up Thanksgivings. Maybe if there's a giant party in a warehouse for Thanksgiving with 500 people, it'll get busted. And it, it made me wonder, since we've been talking economically and you're the amateur economist, would we be doing better here if we had creative ways to reward people who are following the so-called rules than if we pretended that there was going to be a penalty for not following them? Like, what if public health officials went out um, in grocery stores and handed 20s to random people who were wearing masks correctly with their noses covered, and people knew that there were these, like, random prizes for actually doing doing it correctly? Would that end up having a bigger impact if there were a positive incentive than if there were more of this hypothetical rulemaking or, um, or shaming Boy, that, it's a really hard question, and it really cuts to the core of what a lot of the unsolved uh, issues and well, probably forever unsolved issues in economics are, is is really just figuring out how to, how to internalize externalities, right? I mean, that's what this whole pandemic spread has been about, is we are all staying in, not seeing our families, not doing this or that. Um, to limit externalities that are mostly for other people. I mean, especially for, for younger people, like if, if I get the virus, it's probably going to be okay. But uh, so I'm, I'm not wearing a mask when I go out because I'm terrified of getting the virus. It's because I don't want to give the virus to other people or I don't want to pick it up and then give it to other people. So, so it, it's funny that I know you're just throwing out a, a random example with handing 20s to people wearing masks, but what that would actually incentivize is people spending more time out as long as they're wearing masks, which <laughs> Good point. which might be counterproductive. I mean, probably would be counterproductive, especially with a lot of people who are, are financially hurting uh, and, and would really like the idea of picking up a random 20 if they just wandered around in the right place all day. Uh, so, that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. And as, as an economist, amateur or otherwise, I don't think I don't think there is a solution Um but I think it's 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 an important thing to think about. That one thing that I just noticed in in the last week, you you called my attention to um, to one story about a, a shelter in Vermont that that was that was providing services alongside offering virus tests. And there's also a story just now out of Hong Kong that people who are testing positive for the virus are are getting a cash payment of I think six hundred fifty dollars. Equivalent in U.S. dollars, and the idea is, I mean, it, it, we need to get more people tested. Some people are are either reluctant to get tested for for personal reasons, or they they don't think it's that important, or whatever. But the more the, the more testing we have, the more information we have, the more information we have, the easier it is to to track and trace and and chase down the the next level and and maybe mitigate some of these externalities that we can't control in with 
simply with public health messaging, because obviously there's more externalities than we can control with public health mes messaging. So here's an alternative idea that maybe doesn't incentivize people to go out and, and up their contact numbers. A video contest where people Zoom with their families over Thanksgiving and uh, submit submit clips, and then some families are chosen as winners for the best safe remote Thanksgiving. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but like n now that I'm just brainstorming terrible ideas, like I'm surprised there haven't been more creative ideas. The Hong Kong one is interesting to me because you're talking about like incentivizing behavior. If someone were really desperate, I guess you could say that would incentivize them to get the virus. Hopefully people would do the math and realize that it's not worth becoming positive to get the 650. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we have to think about how we've been yelling at people to get tested and the experience of getting tested is pretty bad and there are long lines in the cold right now and you're potentially being exposed to people who are positive even if you're not while you're waiting. We want people to get the vaccine. What's the incentive going to be there? And yeah, I, I, I feel like one of the strongest incentives we have created as a society around Thanksgiving and around other issues is the risk of being like publicly um, shamed and, and, and yelled at. Um, you know, another example could be if somebody posts on Facebook and says, hey, I can't wait to go home to Thanksgiving. I'm going to fly and see all my cousins and we're going to, you know, sit in the living room and look at old photo albums or whatever, um, that there that there is some like societal risk of being shamed in front of your contacts. Um, but that's that's a very risky proposition from a from a public health point of view and, and just surprised that we're not doing more positive things to incentivize people to to reduce the spread. Yeah, I think the I think the public shaming is or the potential public shaming is a really important point, but in the US it's it's really useful for the let's say fifty to sixty percent of the population that's fully on board with this and it might be counterproductive with the remaining percent of the population. And I'll I'll leave which 50% is which as an exercise to the listener. Uh, but in 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 one New York Times column, the the author was a Northern Californian and, and referred to the to mask wearing as I think you referred to it as near religion uh, in in his area, which is is probably true in a lot of places. That I mean, ever since the mask mandate happened in in my area, I'm not sure I've seen anyone in public not wearing a mask. Maybe a couple, but and even even here, they're very careful to say keep in mind that some people might not be able to wear masks for health reasons. It, they didn't actually literally say don't shame people, but um, but that was kind of the subtext that like they say on on public transit, not all disabilities are visible. Um, so even with that in mind, virtually everyone's wearing a mask. That's just the, the sort of the sort of community it is. I'm guessing across Scandinavia and in, in certain parts of the U.S. It absolutely is. But of course, that only goes so far. That's that's the problem. You can't you can't publicly shame everyone unless everyone has the same values, um, and that leaves other creative solutions like the ones you're suggesting. And, and I, I agree, I hadn't thought about the sort of things you're, you're talking about, um, but it seems like the sort of thing where where non-governmental foundations might step in. Like you can see the Gates Foundation doing something like, like your 
your creative Zoom celebration reward uh, type of idea where, you know, you, you give out thousand dollar prizes to the most creative Zoom celebrations or something. Um, I mean, it, 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 none of these things is a magic bullet, but, but it might start to chip away at some of the resistance. Um, one, one issue that I've been meaning to segue us to for a while that I think is a core one, especially one that, that both of us have, have thought a lot about in this area and others is, is where our data collection has failed. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, the, 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 the contact tracers are, are overwhelmed. Uh, there's, and we have news articles that are looking at the same data and coming, uh, coming up with diametrically different conclusions. Uh, we also have this core problem that a lot of simple data collection, just the number of infections, the number of hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera, aggregating that data across the US or across the world has fallen largely to volunteer efforts or non-governmental efforts and has been, in some cases it's been great, but it's also been haphazard. If that was better, Carl, would how much would that be helping? Would it be helping? I mean, it, it, is that one area where where, where governments have failed us in, with subpar data collection? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I and I think it's somewhat forgivable at the start, and also somewhat connected, as as you've suggested, to just the the federal nature of U.S. government and even within states, the the different breakdowns between responsibilities among the state, county, and city public health departments. But it's it doesn't seem that much better now. I think there have been some some improvements for sure since March in the U.S., but we still get conflicting numbers even for the number of new cases each day. And we still get some anomalous uh, data spikes that I think the, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the places that have been tracking this regularly have now kind of come to expect, but not everyone else totally understands. Uh, someone I, I recommend following if you're interested in quantitative analysis on, on the virus, Peter Walker uh, just tweeted that we could expect to see a big drop in cases around Thanksgiving, partly because health departments are not fully staffed and, and a lot of numbers get deferred, and that this happened over Labor Day, so maybe all the more so over an even bigger national holiday. And that that doesn't mean we've necessarily made any gains against the virus, but just that that's the the nature of our public health system and, and the data collection. Um, and it's it's so important because we we rely on these numbers to figure out if what we're doing is working and and to figure out where the the trouble spots are, and also to make policy decisions. A lot of policy decision decisions are now tied to official numbers. And there can be more than one version of that number. So in New York City, the, the schools were just closed to in-person learning because the city cleared a 3% threshold. But maybe the city didn't clear a 3% threshold. It turns out the way the, that New York State assesses it, the city never did. So And spo spoiler alert, there's steam coming out of my ears right now, which means we're having an episode on this specific subject in the near future. Fantastic. Sorry, and, and, yeah, and by the way, like the whole concept of assessing things by the rate of tests that are positive is another way to encourage gaming of the system. And I've heard that in neighborhoods in New York that were 
facing sanctions, sanctions, it's, <laughs> it's not the term that was used, but kind of that's what it was, but basically facing uh, further shutdowns of businesses, there was some talk in those neighborhoods of how all the healthy people should go get tested to drive up the denominator and drive down the, the positive test rate, which is just the logical um, incentive that's created if your biggest concern is about businesses being shut down and not about avoiding further spread. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the data quality is, is something that is going to be a constant theme in any conversations like this we have, because we're, a lot of what we're saying is even implicitly accepting the data that we currently have while knowing that it might be pretty far from the truth or even have a conflicting version we haven't seen yet. Yeah, and that's an important thing to keep in mind, whatever news sources you prefer, and especially if your preferred news sources are Twitter, uh, this is an underlying concern with virtually everything you'll read about the virus. And in some cases, if you're reading better quality sources, the journalists may well know about the data quality issues, but they only have so many words to work with, so many column inches to, to work with. So this stuff gets swept under the rug, but it's, it's an important issue that, fortunately, there are people dealing with it on a daily basis. Uh, in some cases, they're even informing policy decisions. But, uh, but it's something that's not going away anytime soon and will probably create more sort of related issues when vaccines start getting rolled out. So stay tuned for all that, I guess. Um, I think this is probably a good time to, to wrap this up because as as we knew going into this, uh, one of the one of the difficulties of, of podcasting about the virus is that all these issues are both fascinating and interrelated. In virtually everything uh, everything you've said, Carl, so far gave me about five possible directions to go, and I've done what little I could to, to keep us on track in some kind of coherent manner. But in we could easily keep going just with the material we've discussed for another few hours. We'll have to save some things for episodes two through X. Um, but everyone listening, of course, thank you for, for joining us. We're really glad that, that, that someone's listening to our ramblings about the virus. Uh, you can you can contact us probably the best ways on Twitter. Carl is is at Carl Bialik. I'm at Tennis Abstract. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know what you would would like to hear more of, especially. I mean, we, we've talked about about finding guests to bring on. We, we have already have a brainstorm list of several more topics we can focus on. Um, but they are all interrelated. There, a lot of these issues are changing on a, a weekly basis or even faster. Um, Carl, do you have any any final thoughts before we, we wrap up our pilot episode here? I just wish people listening to this before Thanksgiving a happy Thanksgiving and wish us all the creativity and flexibility to find a way to enjoy it safely, even if it means that you're actually eating in person turkey and all the trimmings with people a few months from now or, or maybe middle of next year once once things are safer and vaccinated. That's a, a lot better and more genuine wish than what I have, which is my suggestion that everyone celebrate Thanksgiving the Norwegian way, which is to watch the news and laugh at the Americans. <laughs> Americans um, do it too. There you go. So we're already finding so many commonalities between the world's disparate cultures. Congratulations to us. I feel like we've really accomplished something today. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Carl, um, great to, to get started with this project. Um, yeah, and that wraps up our pilot episode. Hopefully we'll have another one 
pretty soon, and you'll listen to that one too. See you then.